Hello, and welcome to the Short Gun Sportsman, a podcast about handgun hunting brought to you by Handgun Hunters International. My name is Ryan Hoover, and I'm your host. I believe handgun hunting is the most rewarding way to hunt, and it's something I want to share with as many people as I can. If you are at all interested in getting your own game meat, I want to challenge you to a way of hunting that is good for both your spirit and your body, so you can become the confident, self-reliant person you were meant to be. Okay, everybody, today I spoke with a longtime handgun hunter and HHI member, Dick Thompson. Dick has been around for a while, and he is a very prolific handgun hunter. He is an expert in the art of the cast bullet. He uh, powder coats his own bullets. By the end of this episode, you'll pretty much know how to powder coat a bullet. I was fascinated talking to him. Another thing that I didn't know about him until we started preparing for this podcast was that he was friends with Elmer Keith. And uh, having he's from Idaho, uh, which is where Keith ended up. And it's just amazing hearing somebody tell firsthand stories of probably if you had to trace the lineage of our sport of handgun hunting to one person, it would be Elmer Keith. And so I just had a fantastic conversation with Mr. Thompson. And like most handgun hunters that I get a chance to chat with, he was so generous with his experience, so generous to chat with us. We've actually already talked about doing a part two because there is no way we could get through everything in this podcast. I hope you really enjoy this one. But before we get into the episode... I would like to invite you all to go check out Handgun Hunters International. With everything going on these days on social media where everybody seems to have their fill of keyboard courage, HHI is a good place for friendly advice even when we disagree. Our forum is always operated on the one rule that all you're required to be is polite, and it's been an amazing place. I've gotten a lot of great feedback. It's growing, and it gets a lot of views. I also want to say, you know, our giveaways are not gimmicks. I love being able to give things away to our members, things that you may have wanted to try but not buy things that you didn't know about and sometimes just really good things that you're just grateful to have and I love doing that and the feedback also I've gotten from that has been wonderful as well okay I hope you enjoy this episode again it's my interview with Dick Thompson Dick Thompson thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today thank you for asking me Yes, sir. You are, um, you've been around the handgun hunting world quite a while. You, I'm sure you have some tales to tell. I heard about you through a lot of other HHI members who have told me all kinds of spectacular things, including a lot of people who have gotten some cast bullets that you've gone through. You're a prolific caster. But the first thing I want to know, and it's kind of the thing that I ask a lot of people, is what got you into handgun hunting specifically? Uh well, I guess that would go back to my military days. I uh, I was in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970, stationed in Sherman, Texas. Mm-hmm. I was a aircraft mechanic, and uh, uh, I was married. We didn't have any kids, but uh, I wasn't making any money either. So to keep from starving to death, I worked at a sporting goods store one of the Gibson's discount centers, and there was hundreds of them at that time all over uh, the country, a lot of them in Texas, and uh, I worked in the uh, sporting goods department, and because of that, I was around handguns all the time, and and that uh, interested me, and, and that's how I got started in the handgun. 
That's funny you should mention that because Gibson's closed as a corporation, I guess, years ago. But in Kerrville, Texas, which is only about 25 miles from where I'm sitting, they have a Gibson's that the franchisee purchased when the Gibson's closed. And so I'm pretty sure it's the last one. And they still have a pretty interesting and full sporting goods section. So all these years later. I've been in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's still there, still going. So what was the first handgun that you hunted with? Uh, when I was uh, stationed there at Sherman, Texas, uh, I was I was buying a few handguns, and the first one that I hunted with was I bought a used Model 57, a four-inch Smith. Uh, they were selling new for $165, and I bought a used one for a hundred dollars and I would go out a a farmer kind of took me under his wing I met him through the store and uh, he would let me go out to his farm and I would hunt his property and he had a big two-story barn and I would climb up in that barn to get out of the heat and I'd swing those big barn doors open and uh, shoot long range out into his field and that's how I learned to shoot that and uh, I'd spend hours up in that barn shooting at all different distances and uh, and he had foxes and armadillos and possums and everything you could imagine and ponds I'd shoot turtles and everything and that's uh, uh, he'd take me to his deer lease down at Brownwood and uh, uh, he had an old school bus converted into a camper with bunk beds in it, and uh, he just took care of me, just <clears throat> just like I was his son, and it was a wonderful time. That's great to have a mentor like that. That man, golly, a hundred bucks for a used blued fifty-seven. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you still but have I, that gun? No, I don't. I, no, I didn't. I, I, you know. Because being in the military and not making any money, uh, uh, I was always trading and then getting other things, and and that's kind of how you get started. Uh, you have to uh, kind of move on to experiment. And I wish I had it, but uh, I bought and sold and I bought other guns through the store. I one time we got 80 uh, Marlin uh, 39As. Got eighty of them, and they were forty-eight dollars a piece. Mm. And I and I got one of those. And uh, when I got out of the service and came home, uh, one of my friends' his, uh, son got in a bad wreck, went through a fence on a snow machine. And I went up to the hospital, and I gave that kid that, uh, <clears throat> that Marlin thirty-nine A, and he still got it. Now he's got kids. That's well. That is a good story for that. That gun for sure. That's great. Yeah, he still got it. Okay, so when you were going uh, back to your when you were living in Sherman, stationed in Sherman, and you had this mentor, farmer mentor that took you under his wing, and he was taking you to his lease. Were you hunting with that fifty-seven? Uh, yes, I was using that. I was shooting whitetails with it. And did you know? Were you reading, or were you aware of any contemporary people who were um, handgun hunting at the time? Uh, yes, but there weren't very many, you know, other than Elmer Keith, uh, you know, I would read, uh, his articles and just about that time, uh, I don't know which one came out first, if it was Handloader magazine 
or a rifle magazine. One of them came out about that time, and then shortly after, the other one came out. But there was articles in there, and uh, there was some uh, writers. I don't know if Ken Waters was one of the first, but Elmer Keith had uh, uh, articles in, uh, I don't know if it was uh, Guns and Ammo or Shooting Time, whichever. But uh, then there was uh, an old uh, retired Army major named Moss Cosper, and he lived at Dodd City, Texas. And he had come in the store, and he's the one that taught me how to cast bullets. And I'd go over to his place at Dodd City, and uh, we would shoot, and then I got shooting on the base pistol team. And so it kind of run hand in hand. I was casting, and of course they would give me uh, ammo, and, and that's kind of how I got going. But I can't remember some of those early. I still have those magazines. I've got them boxed up wow. on my base. You're are you? I know you live in Idaho. Are you from Idaho? Uh, yes. I uh, my family lived uh, just on the Idaho side of the Utah border. Probably uh, oh, it was only like a quarter mile from the Utah border. So I was actually born in Utah. Hmm. Uh, Although my parents lived on the Idaho side, but uh, Franklin, Idaho, uh, was supposed to have been a settlement in Utah. When Brigham Young settled Franklin, they thought it would be the northernmost city in, or town in uh, Utah. But when they actually surveyed it, it ended up being in Idaho. And so that makes sense because I found out through us kind of communicating to set up set up this podcast that you actually knew and hunted with Elmer Keith, is that right? Well, I never did hunt with him. When okay. I came home from the service in 1970, I made my first trip up there in 71. I met a guy at the gun show that was the sheriff of Lemhi County. Uh, I told him that I wanted to go up and meet Elmer, but uh, the first time I met Elmer was in 71. And uh, I went up there and spent the day with him. And... Uh, he had an old garage separate from the house in his backyard, and he had converted it to that's where he had all of his trophies, and that's where he did his writing and stuff. Uh, we went back there and spent the day visiting, and and uh, I'm sure that's that's probably where I took that first picture of him holding that engraved 375 because uh, a big time uh, Texas collector bought that. And then he contacted me, and he wanted that photograph because I had shown that several times on different forums, and he wanted to buy that photograph and put it with that gun. Mm -hmm. And I told him I wouldn't sell it to him, but I told him I'd give it to him. So I made another copy, and I sent him the original, and I wrote on the back when I met with Elmer and what it was, and it was that engraved 375. But someone in Texas bought that when they auctioned all of Elmer's guns he he bought that 375 engraved so that's how that worked out but I I don't know if that was in my 1971 trip or, or one of the later trips I met I stopped several times because uh, we used to go elk hunting we'd go right through salmon to hunt the Selway and uh, I'd usually stop on the way back and stop in and uh, buy a book from Elmer and visit or a couple times my wife and I drove up 
Uh, one time my brother was with me. One time my dentist was with me. My wife would visit with Lorraine because they both like to sew. So she'd stay in the house and visit with Lorraine and, and Elmer and I'd go out back and, uh, and we had a good time. But I never did go shoot with Elmer. Uh, I, I always wanted to, but I was, I guess I was kind of intimidated. I don't know. Cause I was, I was, you know, I was in my early twenties and just mm-hmm. happened, you know, I'm sure that we could have, but I just didn't do it. And it sounds like you got plenty of practice in the, uh, hayloft of that barn yeah i i had some great times uh shooting up there funny thing uh dub dub carney that old farmer uh he had some big uh, brush piles and he'd pile them up and then leave them there for a year and let them dry out and uh, i was up there shooting one time and i thought well i might as well do him a, a favor and so uh, i thought i'd burn them and I felt there were going to be a bunch of critters in there because there were huge piles. And so I had two handguns on me, and I went up there, and I got those brush piles burning. And there was animals coming. There was raccoons, and there was possums, and there was snakes. And I was just shooting like crazy. And pretty quick, I had a field on fire, and I panicked. I took my shirt off, and I was fighting, and I was just exhausted. <laughs> because it was headed towards his barn. I thought it was going to burn his barn down. He had tractors in there and the truck. And, he, you know, he grew cotton. He had one of those big cotton trucks in there with the rack thing on the back. And <laughs> I was just total panic. But I got it put out before I burned his barn down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I've, I've actually had a similar experience in my youth. So I can, and when you say the, I know the feeling. <laughs> oh no uh that, well that's fascinating so um i know you sent me some pictures of some books that like six guns elmer keith six guns book and, and others that he had personalized and signed to you were those books that you bought from him personally when you would go back to see him yeah when uh when i'd stop in from an elk hunt or something i'd knock on the door he'd come to the door and every single time he'd be wearing that four inch 44 I, he, I don't think he ever took it off except to go to bed because mm-hmm. uh, it was just part of him. And I think he got a lot of company. And uh, when he danced at the door, he was wearing that four inch 44. And, and he was always uh, very patient, very polite. And they come in, had a very modest home. And uh, the, the only animals that uh, Elmer had in the house, everything else was out in the back in that trophy room. But he had a bighorn sheep, and he had uh, a sable, and he had uh, one set of elephant ivory that uh, arched over the couch. And then uh, everything else was out back. Uh, in that uh, garage that he had converted. And then all of his guns were upstairs. So if he wanted to show me a gun, he would go up the narrow stairway and grab a gun or two and bring them back down and show me. And we'd sit there and uh, he would say so-and-so engraved this. And uh, we'd just have a wonderful time. And I'd stay most of the day. What were some of the things that you learned from Elmer Keith as far as you know, that, that made you think, well, I want to try this or I want to try that or any, any lessons that you learned that you still use to this day? Well, he just talked about just about shooting in general. You know? It wasn't so much any one thing in particular. 
uh, when a lot of times, mostly what we talked about were, were other handgunners. He'd talk about uh, Ross Seafried a fair amount. He talked about uh, oh, uh, somebody had just been there, and I think maybe it was Jim Carmichael. Mm-hmm. But I think the one that kind of impressed him the most was uh, Ross Seafried. Uh, that's fascinating. And uh, when we first started talking, I had no idea that you had this connection with Elmer Keith because I'll tell you, my first, what got me into guns, period, was I remember buying, when I was a teenager, the 1995, I don't remember, one, some, one month in 95, hunting, Peterson's Hunting Magazine. Uh-huh. And, and they had reprinted um, one article that Keith wrote about double guns, big bore double guns. And then they had also reprinted an article. Oh, oh, I take that back. I'm sorry. This was not in that hunting magazine. This was in the uh, Guns and Ammo Annual 1995, but I still have that one. Anyway, and the other article they reprinted was his retelling of the story of hitting the the deer at over 600 yards with his pistol um, when he was uh, trying to help, trying to help somebody else who had wounded it, you know, to keep it from going away. He wasn't trying to actually hunt at that way. That was kind of, you know, I was a slack jaw, wide eyed teenager reading these stories about him. And he he always seemed bigger than life in those pictures with his big hat and his cigar sticking out of his mouth. And uh, Uh that's always that, but that's really neat to speak to somebody with a firsthand experience (laughs) of him. Cause he's such a, I mean, like if any, he's such, if anybody is the godfather of handgun hunting, it's him. Yeah. Well, you know, I had one guy tell me that uh, he had talked to someone that had visited Elmer and that Elmer swore a lot. And I said, that's total bunk. That That is not true. I never heard Elmer say a single swear word. And I, I don't know how many times I went there. It, it was uh, multiple times, uh, I'd say eight or nine. I don't, I really don't know. I bought, uh, four books from him, but I, he was very polite and very patient and he was relaxed. You know, he, uh, he wasn't, uh, looking at his watch for to, like he had something else to do, or he was enjoying the, the visit as much as I was, it looked like. And, uh, we were just having a, a good time talking about something that we both like yeah and uh, you know he was talking about long range and uh, mostly he'd go get a gun and he'd show me the sights and the reason the sights were the way they were and and, and how to shoot long range and and uh, different bullets and the, the way he had designed bullet molds and he he enjoyed uh being elmer keith <laughs> it, it was just he it was kind of like uh, John Wayne being John Wayne, you know, he knew who he was. Right. Uh, when they, when they took all of that, uh, all of those trophies and guns and stuff to Boise and put them in that Cabela's, Mm -hmm. they removed that room just exactly the way it was at his house and took it to Cabela's, took the walls down and put them back exactly the way they were when they were in that, uh, converted garage out in the back of his place exactly wow Wow. it was just amazing when i walked into cabela's the first time it was just like i was walking back into his garage with the desk and and everything the way it it was phenomenal wow that's 
That's impressive. I mean, that just speaks to his legacy, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was amazing. That's, uh, that, uh, man, wow. What a great uh, what a great experience to have had, and I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. So you are also known in the community as uh, some as a prolific bullet caster. It sounds to me like when you first started that that was a good way to save money on bullets. Is that true? Yeah, that's that's uh, even though bullets were when I was working in that store, I can this number. I don't know why it sticks in my head, but uh, boxes of pistol bullets almost always when I was selling them at Gibson's were two sixty seven a box, mm-hmm. and they were uh, we sold Hornady and Spear. Uh, I don't remember if we sold Sierra. We probably did, but I don't recall. But uh, pistol bullets, it was half jacket and three-quarter jacket. That Some of them were good. Some of them weren't so good. Were uh, usually 267 a box for 100 And I started out with those because I didn't know how to cast. I didn't know anything about it mm-hmm. until that old uh, retired sergeant major over there at Dodd City, and he got me into casting. Uh and then I went over to Denison, Texas, and uh, I don't think they had bullet molds, but they showed me in a catalog where I could order them. And then slowly and very slowly, uh, I started finding some books. And you have to, when you're totally new at something and you don't know anybody, it's a slow process. And so, you know, I, I uh, uh, bought a uh, 44 mold and a 357 mold. Those were my first two molds. And that's how I got started. Uh, straight wheel weights. Almost always I could get them for free at those car shops. Once in a while, I'd pay 4 or $5 for a bucket full. Mm-hmm. Asking on my wife's kitchen stove. Didn't know anything about fumes. Uh, uh, first, I wasn't even fluxing. Didn't know you had to flux. Oh. Uh, nobody told me you had to flux. And uh, and then I learned about that and just trial and error, you know, uh, like I say, casting on the kitchen stove in a little apartment that we had, no kids. And we had two kids while we were in the service. I got two little Texans and they're married and gone, got kids of their own now. But, uh, that's how I got started. That, that's fascinating. And you answer my other question because I was going to, I was wondering if you, were a wheel weight guy or an old linotype guy or or what? <laughs> yeah, never never even knew about linotype for several years. Uh, just cast straight wheel weights forever. And then I started uh, breaking it down with uh, Ken. I uh, did uh, one time buy a uh, 44 hollow point with the, with the handle on the back, and that was a slow process. And uh, But uh, I never had... I've read a lot of stories of guys shooting uh, deer or whatever and uh, doing this long chase thing. But uh, I, to tell you the truth, Ryan, I never had much problem with that. I Maybe it was growing up in Idaho. Maybe it was luck. I, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. But I've never chased very many animals for very far with a cast bullet. Uh well, I'm, ga- I'm glad you brought that up because one of the most hotly debated topics in the handgun hunting world is cast versus jacketed. And now cast versus jacketed versus solid copper or brass or whatever. I, I am one of those rare uh, handgun hunters, I think, who has no dog in this hunt. 
I'm not a diehard either way. And I always like to hear people's perspective because, mm. you know, a lot of times somebody can, e- somebody can have one bad experience that was either a fluke or a mistake and it sours them on one or the other. And, and they just start their thinking a whole nother way because of it. I, I've, I've heard from you. I mean, I've heard what I've heard from you. I've heard variations of that story uh, of people who use cast bullets and it's just like anything, you know, you put it into its proper use and it'll probably get the job done. But another thing, and I think this is key for uh, listeners to hear about, I think that it's all about doing it the way you like to do it and the way it works for you. As long as you're staying ethical and legal, then go, you go do you. Do you use uh, cast bullets exclusively? That's all I ever use. Mm-hmm. I never use jackets. Uh, early on, I used jackets. Like I say, that's all I knew. I didn't even know about cast. And then as I got into it, uh, the first few years, it was straight wheel weights. And then uh, when I got out of the service in 1970 and I learned a little bit more, uh, I, I found that uh, the best thing to do would be to shoot a cast bullet as, as soft as you could make it and still get accuracy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the question was always, why not? Why not shoot it as soft as you could get by with and still maintain accuracy? Because if you could get some expansion with that cast bullet and still maintain accuracy, why wouldn't you do it that way? A hard bullet to me never made any sense. Mm-hmm. That that makes a lot of sense. And so what about uh, leading? Did you overcome did you have to overcome that or was it just a fact of life? Well, I that's that's the that was the uh, parameter you always had to work against. If you were getting leading, then you had to up the hardness. And so what I what I started out doing was I would go 70/30. I'd go 70% wheel weights, 30% lead. And uh, I would always try to go somewhere around a thousand feet per second. And if I went above that, say I went to 1100, then I would go 80, 20, so, 80%. So uh, wheel weights to lead? Yes. Oh, okay. Because what are, I don't remember, what do wheel weights have all in them? What does it have in it? Yeah, what are the well, what's the alloy in the primarily lead with a, a little bit of uh, anemone, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of tin, and a little bit of arsenic. Okay, okay. But it's a little bit starved for tin, and so that's where uh, guys will uh, add a little bit of tin. Okay. I haven't done that. Tin's a little expensive, and I've uh, I haven't added the tin. They most guys like two percent tin. And that's that's good to do if you have a, a source of tin at a reasonable price. What I've done to get good fill out in my molds is just to run my furnace high, and I usually run my furnace wide open, 850. Oh, really? Yes, I run it 850 and never change it. I don't turn it down. Okay. But I do uh, now. I hear several years ago a printing shop was going out of business, and I got. 1,200 pounds of linotype for six cents a pound. Wow. I bought it all. Wow. And so I do throw a little bit of linotype in there because that's a good source of tin, but it also ups your antimony. So you don't want to go too heavy on antimony and get brittle. 
So, you know, it's kind of a trade-off. You have to be careful. I would rather go a little high on on 10 and pick up hardness that way than to go high on anemone and, and get hardness that way and go brittle. Right. You don't want anything crumbling. Man, it's yeah. uh, it's all I, – when I, I haven't read it in a long time, but when I was a teenager, I bought the Lyman Cast Bullet Handbook, and I don't know how many times I read it. Or um, – Another one that I read a lot was um, the ABCs of reloading back when Dean Grinnell was still doing it. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's, it's great to uh, kind of revisit this because personally I, I use jacketed bullets mostly purely for convenience sake. I don't have anything against cast bullets. I have some loaded ammunition with cast bullets, but I have three kids and I don't have time to cast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, that's uh, the way we're and so I, uh, but I have done it before, and it is a lot of fun. It's so rewarding to do uh-huh. to know, you know, that every time you create something that's useful is rewarding. But uh-huh. so, what do you do? Okay, that's interesting to me that you're talking about running your furnace wide open like that. Because uh, what, what, what would be a typical casting temperature like under seven hundred? Uh, well, if you go seven hundred. You would have to cast awfully fast okay. to keep mold temperature because that that alloy is just too cold. Gotcha. I don't. I think you'd get uh, rounded bullets. I just don't think that would be near hot enough. Okay. I I will cast at like I say at 850, and then I'll run uh, most of the time. I'll run two molds, uh, depending. Now, if you're running with a Lee mold, uh, that's uh, aluminum. And uh, you've got to be very careful because uh, you can uh, break that sprue plate or if you leave it on there too long, uh, you've got to be careful with the lead mold. So break, uh, how do you break the, sp- the sprue plate? It'll get cold, it'll cool. And then if you leave it on there too long, if you set it down and pick up another mold and you're using say a six cavity mold, uh, that sprue plate, it's just, you'll, you'll go to, uh, break it off there and you can't get it to to break free mm. you'll you'll break it you'll break the hand when you go you know it's got that handle on it mm-hmm. and you have to pry those handles apart and uh, and you'll break them and mm-hmm. so with with the six cavity lead uh, if you're going to use that give it uh, just enough time for the uh, sprue to uh, cool Give it a few seconds past that, and then pop that sprue off. And then, if you want to set it down, that's okay. But you've got to pop that sprue off right away with the lee handles, uh, or you're going to run into problems. Oh, okay. So, yeah. are you, are you saying I'm obviously a novice, and now you've sparked my curiosity? Are you saying so? You, if I got this right, your order of operation will be to take your mold fill the cavities, let it cool, I mean, with a lee mold, let it cool for a couple seconds, knock that sprue off, and then set it down while it's still closed with the bullets in it? Yeah, you can leave the bullets in it, and you're you're okay. Now you're not going to break your handles with a lee mold because you've got to pop that sprue off, but it's okay to leave the bullets in it, and you're all right. But if you just set that mold down, a lee mold, it's got that extra handle on the right side. Mm Mm-hmm. Set that down and let it get very cold with, uh, with all of that sprue sitting on top. You you run a risk of running of breaking those handles. Okay, I understand. Huh? That's on say uh, uh, 
four cavity LBT or a, a Maya mold or, or NOE or some other brand that where you knock it off with a low mallet or something, that's okay because uh, th that's a uh, steel uh, uh, screw plate mm -hmm. and take the abuse. You can do it gotcha. thousands thousands of times. But with that, those Lee uh, four or six cavity molds, you've got to get that screw popped off there as soon as it solidifies and uh, get that off, and then you then you're okay to set it down for a few seconds or a minute or two if you're going to go to another mold. But you can't leave that screw on there and let it uh, cool very long. Okay, or you're going yeah. to break it. Interesting. Okay, so yeah. talk to me about gas checks. When do you decide whether or not you're going to use a gas check? Uh, I very seldom ever use gas checks uh, unless it's. Uh, I use them on the 357 maximum because I hot rod it. I use them on the 327 uh, magnum because I hot rod that one. Then uh, most of the time after that, I don't use them unless I run into a good price on a mold and, and I buy it and uh, it happens to be a gas check. I have that one mold that I used in Africa. I have a, a 44 and then I have a, couple of builders. I have four or five that are they call for a gas check. And sometimes you'll get your best accuracy with gas checks. There's no there's no getting around it. You can't deny it. Sometimes a gas check will outshoot a plane base. And other times a plane base will shoot phenomenal. I've shot some amazing groups with plane base bullets and other times, like I say, uh, a gas check will shoot best, but sometimes, depending on your alloy or your barrel fit, uh, you can get leading uh, with a plain base bullet. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And what about? Let's see, what's the next one? What about lube? What would what what has been your process for that? I'm sure it's evolved over the years. Uh, for many years, uh, I used Alox blend and then, uh, oh, geez, I don't know, 35 years ago or so, I started using uh, Verl Smith's uh, LBT, uh, either as harder lube or as uh, blue soft, and, uh, and I've still got several sticks, but for about 10 years now, I've been powder coating and uh, I'll never change. It's just so much better, so much cleaner. There's no smoke. At the end of the day, even after long runs of a three-day pistol match, I used to shoot all over the country in USPSA, and my cylinders would be, well, I'd, I'd clean them at night at the motel but because uh, I was shooting uh, soft lube. But with uh, powder-coated bullets, you're done spotless. It's, you don't. I never clean a barrel ever. I just don't clean a barrel. That's I clean my You sound I'll oil the base pin or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now you sound you're talking about not cleaning things. You sound like a gunsmith. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a gun. I have a son that's a gunsmith. Oh well, yeah, I was a I was a gunsmith for 15 years, and I I will be, yeah. confess that my guns were the dirtiest. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay, powder coating, for those who don't know, and tell me if I've got it right, it's it's basically you apply, um, is it the same as in the industrial application, like an ionized powder that goes into a uh, an oven and then hardens around the surface? Yes, and it's, and it's a, it is such a simple 
process, Ryan, that it's, uh, you just think how something this simple can work and work so efficiently, mm-hmm. but it does. And, uh, okay. Process, so, so walk me through it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what I do is I use, uh, quart mayonnaise jars or peanut butter jars, but you can use cool whip containers. You can use just about any plastic container that's round. Some work better than others. They'll tell you to check that little diamond uh, uh, label on the bottom for that. But uh, I've, I've used about everything. But mostly I'll use a mayonnaise container or a peanut butter jar, quart jars or something work best for me. And uh, and I have several different paints that I, I buy from uh, uh you know, Eastman or Eastman's makes uh, good paint, or uh, oh, what's the other one? One that I use most can't think of it right now. But anyway, uh, they advertise on uh, Cast Bullets forum and sell the paint, and uh, you can buy it in a one-pound bag. Usually, what it comes in, and I'll, I use about five different colors. I don't get too carried away, but I usually use blue, black, red or uh, purple those are the four colors i stay with but now they're making a clear that looks like uh, just looks like a cast bullet but it's painted it's a, just a clear uh, paint and uh, i'll put uh, let's say we're using 44 bullets i'll put 100 125 to 150 in that jar and a tablespoon of paint and i'll swirl it for 30 seconds or so to kind of distribute that paint and then I'll shake it and I'll shake it pretty hard for about uh, 60 seconds and I'll take the lid off and look and if those bullets look like they're 90% covered I will uh, I'll have some newspaper spread out over a table and I'll put a colander just a regular colander on that newspaper and I'll dump those bullets on there and I'll bounce it pretty hard and you want to you want to bounce it pretty hard to knock the residual paint off, and uh, and I'll have my toaster oven. Uh, I have an old used one that uh, I've had for over 30 years, and I'm still using it. And I have that preheated to 400. And uh, just because your dial says 400 doesn't mean it's 400. So you might want to buy a uh, food thermometer that you can hang in there to check it. But uh, you want it for about 400 degrees. Preheat it ahead of time while you're while you're uh, shaking your bullets, getting them ready. I turn it on as soon as I go in there, and uh, but bounce those bullets in the colander, and then I have a little tray with non-stick aluminum foil. You want the dull side up. You don't want the shiny side up. It'll it'll say right on the container. Uh, the dull side goes up. Put that on that little tray, a, a layer of it, and then just dump those bullets on there, and then I just shake the tray to kind of even them out. And if a few of them are double stacked, don't worry about it. You don't want a ton of them double stacked because they'll stick together a little bit, but they, they pop loose real easy once they're baked. But if a few of them are double stacked, don't worry about it. Now, some guys go to the trouble of standing them up, and you can do that, but... Like I say, it's not necessary. But if you want to do that and take the extra time with some tweezers, go ahead and do it. 
don't do it with your fingers because it's going to come off on your fingers. Use a pair of tweezers if you want to do that. But I just shake the pan and just leave them laying there. And if a few of them are double stacked, so be it. Uh, put them in the toaster oven and go about 12 to 13, 14 minutes. It's not real, uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, take them out after that time, turn your oven off. And, uh, and let them cool. Don't don't touch them or disturb them or anything. Let them dry, cool down, and uh, and then go ahead and size them. Now you're going to gain one and a half to two thousandths diameter. So they're going to size a little tight. Depending on what kind of sizer you have, you may want to spray them with Hornady One Shot case loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, leave them just just put them in a I use an old cookie tin a round cookie tin I just dump those bullets in there after they've cooled I dump them in there and just shake them around I don't do anything special with them just dump them in there and shake them then I just spray them with that Hornady one shot lube just, just give them a shot or two and it'll distribute it runs it's a little wax base and they'll go right through a a uh, star lubricizer real easy if you don't you're going to get a stuck bullet and you're going to be saying swear words <laughs> you will you will get them stuck you'll have to go through with a drill bit through the bottom and drill a hole through that bullet to weaken it to knock it out of there you're going to break your handle uh-huh. now if you're using a lee sizer which is the best way to go they're cheap they're only 20 something bucks and they go right on your drill on your uh uh uh, RCBS uh, reloading press. Uh, that's the best way to do it. Just buy those dies that way. And then you don't have to uh, use the Hornady one shot. Just size them that way. That's what I do with most of them. But I do have a star sizer and I also have a RCBS sizer. But the star sizer is uh, over $300. The RCBS sizer is close to $200. You're, you're saving a lot of money. And, and you don't have to buy uh, multiple dies at 30 or $40 a piece for the star sizer or the RCBS sizer. Just buy those cheap leave ones and they last forever and they're fast. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to buy a, a separate lubricizer machine to do it. They fit right in your uh, uh, reloading press. What a fascinating material. So it, it bonds to the lead, but remains flexible enough to be sized, yet is hard enough not to rub off in the barrel. Yes, it's it's amazing. Now, here's what you want to do to make sure that you're getting a good bond to these, that you've baked them long enough. Mm-hmm. And like 12 to 13, 14 minutes is long enough. But here's what how you test them. Take them out on some concrete or a piece of steel or something. Take a hammer and smash one of those bullets flat. Everybody will tell you to do the hammer test. And when you smash that, you'll see if you didn't bake that bullet long enough, you're going to chip little pieces of paint off of there and just flake off. Ah. But what you see is it won't. You're just going to smash that thing flat. You can smash it right down flat like a penny, and that's going to bond right to that lead. That's amazing. I have seen them, you know, um, there's several other HHI members and other hunters that I've seen 
uh, post pictures of them and use them. And, you know, at, at first you're like, those are some cool colors and all that. But, uh, and I knew about powder coating, you know, when I was in, when I was in the military, I was on a Naval ship and we had a powder coat shop that we had to get to do our on deck ammo lockers. But that's, uh, that's what a, what a cool use of that, that technology. And you're right, because so the, the few times that I have cast bullets, I, you know, I use Lee stuff just cause I'm cheap, but it worked fine. And it's a, it's a pain to do all that lubing. And it's a, what you're sound like, it sounds like rather when you hear the word powder coating, you think specialized equipment, this is going to be difficult, but it's really good to hear you break down that process. And it is, it sounds very simple. Ryan, it is so simple that it's almost embarrassing. <laughs> it's so simple to do. And uh, your gun is clean. You, you'll you look in that barrel and, and you're not going to find anything. Uh, I mean, I'll clean my barrel if it needs it. Mm-hmm. I don't abuse guns. But all I ever do is I'll clean my ratchet. I'll clean my base pin or whatever. I'll put a drop of oil on there. And I'll put a, a maybe a speck of oil on the ratchet and work it, you know, and clean it like we should do. But uh, I'm not going to wipe my gun off. But uh, when I used to shoot a USPSA match, I'd have to go back to the motel every night and, and my cylinder would be black. You know how they were. Yeah. And I was shooting a, a 610 Smith & Wesson uh, 40 in competition all over the country. And uh, at the end of the day, I had to be careful. Sometimes I'd have to go over to the cleaning station before the match was over on the first day and clean my gun to complete a match. And uh, I, I had to be careful because that uh, lube was gumming up my gun. This stuff doesn't do it. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. If there's anything in there, it's uh, powder residue or from a primer or something. There's nothing coming off the bullet. One other thing I was going to tell you real quick. Uh, and you can go very, very soft with your alloy, and the powder coating will allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going softer and softer and softer, and I'm getting away with it. And if you, and one other thing, if you want to go harder, but for some reason, like I did in Africa when I shot the Cape Buffalo and some of those bigger animals, uh, you can water quench right out of the toaster oven because you're you're annealing the bullets down. When you're hardening them in, in the toaster oven, you're annealing them down to a to a lower BHN. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you want to take the temp, the hardness back up, take them out of there and water quench them real fast right into a pan of water, a little whatever you've got. You can just quench them right in the water and cool them, and that'll take the hardness back up several points. Mm. The, the ASCAP, I mean, I understand the tempering and stuff. So when you have a bullet that's whatever the hardness is as cast, and then you, let's just for arbitrary sake, say it's 15 or whatever, and then you go through the powder coating process and it drops it down to 13. Then when you water quench it, does it go back up to the as cast hardness or does it usually get harder? It, it'll depend on your alloy, but most of the time you're going to find out uh, when you take them out of the toaster oven, a lot of times those bullets are going to be an eight or a nine. Mm. Maybe it, they'll be that soft, and, and they'll shoot fantastic. And if you water quench them, they're going to go back up to uh, in the 13 to 15 range, which is alloy, which is lineman number two in that vicinity. Okay. And it, again, it depends on your alloy, how much uh, anemone and, and whatever you've got in there, arsenic and stuff, but Sure. Uh, but I but I cast mine right now almost always. I'm using fifty fifty, half wheel weights and half lead. 
Okay. Okay. The last question I have about this is if somebody is going to be, somebody is interested in getting into casting their own bullets, what is a good source of casting material? Like what are some of the way, I mean, I know you can buy Lyman number two, you know, on the internet now, but what are some ways that you can kind of bootstrap your, your bullet supply? Cause I don't think at least locally, you know, either somebody else is getting all of it or they're too proud of it to get wheel weights and make it cost effective anymore. I'd get range lead. Hmm. Yeah. I'd get range lead and powder coated. You'd be tickled to death in, in handguns. Well, that's, that's a, that's a good tip. I got to tell you though, one of the only unfortunate things is that I don't have a range near me. Yeah. You can, <laughs> you can, uh, you can uh, buy it online. Mm-hmm. You can, there's enough ranges around, or like I say, buy it online. That's the, that's probably the uh, best resource I could tell you. Do you still get wheel weights? I do. I've got probably 20 buckets. Okay. Do you, do you have just uh, like a relationship with a local tire shop or something? Uh, no, I just stayed way ahead of the game because ah. I was shooting so many matches. Uh, I shot 54,000 rounds one year when I was – when I was, uh, well, I was number one in the nation at one time in A-class revolver and, and shooting so many rounds. And uh, so you on components, you had to stay way ahead of the game. And, and I, <laughs> that's how you do it. I was just grounding all the time. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. And, you know, five five-gallon bucket of wheel weights is uh, pretty heavy. Yeah. And now a five-pound bucket, you, there's very little that you can salvage because there's so much zinc and steel mm-hmm. and there. You're going to throw away a lot more than you salvage. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Huh. Well, man, that was a that's that's so fascinating to me. I I love being able to talk to people to just break that kind of stuff down for me. Uh, a couple a couple of things that. I also wanted to ask you about is I know, you know, you kind of live, you live out West and you have a, a great backyard for hunting right now. One of the um, biggest impediments to a lot of people in, in my situation. And I found that a lot of handgun hunters are either like you, you know, like you have a lot of experience. You've been doing it for a long time. You have been on a lot of hunts with a lot of different guns, et cetera, et cetera. Or, or me, on the other on the other end, you know, I'm younger, raising a family, not as easy to just get away, uh, and everything's gotten exorbitantly more expensive than when you were my age uh, or even younger than me. So, what are some what are some good opportunities that handgun hunters should be looking at for hunts uh, these days, especially you know in the lower 48? Well, I, uh, you know, some guys turn their nose up at. Uh hunting uh, Texas or hunting a high fence or something like that. But I say you've got to get some experience under your belt and uh, you've got to take advantage of every opportunity that you get. And uh, coming from a state like Idaho when I was a young man and having all this public land available, I thought the same thing at first. And then when I first went to Texas, I thought, I'm not going to pay somebody to let me hunt. And then I found out I am going to pay. If I'm going to hunt in Texas, I'm going to pay somebody. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I did. And I was happy to do it. And it, was, it wasn't it was what I thought at all. It was There were big places. There was lots of game. And uh, 
it, it was amazing hunting and you have to get experience somehow and there's always somebody out there i found some of the best people i've ever met in my life were were in texas and uh, uh like that farmer that took me to his lease and uh took me to sonora and we went all over and uh, he knew i didn't have any money i was working two jobs and still starving to death <laughs> but uh you have to find ways to get those hog hunts in or hunt a hunt a deer or try to get a short hunt out of state if you can but uh everybody can't be blessed like what i am with being able to hunt all this public land i can from where i live ryan i can go 15 or 20 minutes in any direction from my house and i can be hunting uh deer or elk or bear uh i think maybe i don't know if i told you or not but when i kill my moose with the binoculars i could see the roof of the church across the street from my house when i <laughs> shot my moose before 80. Uh, and on that moose hunt, I seen 37 moose in 27 days, and I was never more than four or five miles from my house. Uh, that's just that kind. Of, that's the way public land hunting is where I live. But everybody can't experience that, so you just have to uh, kind of dig your heels in, do a little homework, and and try to find a a mentor or somebody that'll show you. But uh, don't don't thumb your nose at uh, hunting some of those states that's got some good hog hunting or or uh, white-tailed deer or something because that's that's where most of it's at. I, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I've 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 felt similarly. You know, being raised in Texas, I actually used to work on a high fence ranch. It wasn't a hunting ranch; it was more of a show ranch. Uh, but having been in that world of exotics and the um, exotic auctioning and all that stuff. It's, I mean, it is odd sometimes to see, you know, like an Oryx or a, or an elk in central Texas, but it's not, it's not always a gimme one thing. And two, you're, I, I really love what you're saying about getting experience. You got to get experience somehow. And some of those are the, the easiest, some of the easiest ways are to take advantage of those game ranches. And then, you know, as you, as you grow and you, especially for those of us who live in Texas or other areas that aren't, you know, big out west, big uh, public land areas, those are just some things that we we should be taking advantage of and not be thumbing our nose at them, but rather more bringing them into our community. Yeah, I agree, hundred uh, percent. And then you know, you don't if you go out west. There's a lot of places you don't have to have a guide or anything. You just got to do a little homework. You know, there's a lot of resources where you can just, you know, study some maps or make a few phone calls and uh, and find areas to hunt. There, there's a lot of areas in the West that doesn't have game, but uh, there, there's a lot of game to be found. Uh, mule deer or something like that or spring bear hunt. Uh, they're, they're not too hard to find if you're willing to do a little legwork and uh do a little, make a few phone calls. The fishing game are pretty helpful, but uh, nobody was born doing that. It's not, <laughs> it's not hard, not hard to find. When I first started going into the cellway, when I, uh, even before I was out of the service, there were so many elk in there, Ryan, that Stevie Wonder could have got a bull every year. 
it was just that amazing. Uh, wow. There was elk in there that were dying of old age and had never even seen a human. Wow. It was those kind of elk numbers. And uh, I was I was bugling them in with my mouth. Hmm. Uh, it was uh, my, my, the one mule that I used to ride. Uh, all I had to do was separate that mule from the horses, and she was a coward, so she'd start braying. And when she'd start braying, the elk would start bugling. And uh, I mean, it was just a circus. Wow. It was just elk but, uh, and salmon in the river. And <laughs> it was it was. Elk. But when the wolves moved in, we quit going because they uh, wiped them out. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And actually, you know, now that we're we're doing this, I'm realizing we've got to do a part two, Dick, because we haven't, I want to talk more about your hunting experiences and we've just barely scratched the surface, but, uh, so we will schedule a part two, but, at, but oh. before, before I finish up here, I'm going to ask you the question that I, I try to ask everybody who I interview. And that is if you meet somebody these days, who's interested in becoming a handgun hunter, what advice do you give them? I would I guess the best advice I would give them is uh, don't don't overgun yourself. Uh, I mean, any any gun will work, but so many guys uh, think that they have to go with with real heavy loads, and you don't. The important thing is to use uh, good bullets, and and for me, that's a heavy cast bullet. I'm I'm not. Uh, I, well, I guess I am trying to promote cast bullets because I got uh, they've worked so well for me on well over a hundred animals. But uh, a heavy bullet just is magic. You, you, there's no bad angles. You mm. can you can take a, a a angle a bad angle shot if, as long as the vitals are lined up on the other end. Uh, it's going to happen. But but don't uh, don't shoot a load that that you're afraid of. Shoot something that you can handle, and you'll be able to shoot it accurately. And I think that's the key. If you're if you're accurate with it, you're you're going to be successful. And uh, always talk around to, to people that have had success. And I think most of them will tell you the same thing. You talk to Mark Hampton, uh, probably the premier hunter in the world. Uh, you talk to Glenn Frexel, some of those guys. Uh, Tank Hoover, uh, Furman Garza. I think those guys tell you the same thing. Uh, shoot a good load, put it in the right place, and uh, you're going to eat backstraps. Yes, sir. I agree. I always tell people, you know, one round of 357 in the right place is worth a whole cylinder full of 500 Magnum in the dirt. You're spot on, Ryan. <laughs> And unfortunately, some of these big box store gun counter salesmen don't do us any favors by trying to sell those, you know, giant, giant guns. Not that there isn't a place for them or that they're not fun sometimes, but I, I kind of, you know, I'm more of a moderate recoil kind of guy myself. And so I, I never feel like I need to punish myself and I seem to get it done. But it's good to hear you say that as well. And you've, you've sparked my interest in getting out my casting stuff. When I shut down my shop, I brought most of my tools home and I have this big tub of, of uh, lead that I've cast into uh, ingots and uh, all my stuff. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust it out and uh, I got to give powder coating a try. Yeah, yeah. It, it's super simple and it's very effective. 
Well, Dick, thank you so much. I mean, this is, I feel like I could do like a, an all day podcast with you and, and, and seriously, let's talk about scheduling a part two where we can talk more about the actual hunting part. Your, your information is so valuable. And like most people I've met in our community, friendliness and willing to share is just, is just beyond the pale. And I really can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. All righty, sir. We will talk soon and I appreciate it. Have a good one. Great talking to you, Ryan. Well, now I hope you know what I mean when I say we have to do a part two. We barely scratched the surface of Dick's hunting experience because I was so fascinated by his Elmer Keith stories and his knowledge of cast bullets. I have been inspired to break out the casting material and learn how to powder coat. It sounds like a lot of fun. I cannot tell you how continually amazed and impressed I am at the generous spirit of so many handgun hunters in our world. And you know, just the fact that Dick is an HHI member is a bonus and we get access to him all the time on our forum. Uh, he is just, again, generous with his experience. And it's a, it's a great thing to have him in our community. I was so grateful to be able to do this and I'm looking forward to finding more folks like Dick who may have flown under the radar, but have so much to offer to us as a community. So anyway, I hope you all have good hunting and I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is produced by Handgun Hunters International. HHI is the only organization dedicated solely to supporting and growing the sport of handgun hunting. Membership gets you access to our great, well-moderated forum where friendly handgun hunters of all experience levels share stories and information from folks that have actual experience in our sport. We also host giveaways to our members of guns, gear, and ammo every month, and each prize is worth several times what membership costs. In addition to this podcast, we publish a free digital magazine, The Six Gunner, which is written exclusively by HHI members. If you are a handgun hunter or support handgun hunting in any way, you need to be a member of HHI. Join today at handgunhuntersinternational.com. Again, if you have any questions on how to get started in handgun hunting, please reach out to me at ryan at handgunhuntersinternational.com. If you think we deserve it, please leave us a five-star review and don't forget to follow Handgun Hunters International on social media at handgunhuntersint. God bless and good hunting. Good hunting.